to Flyers AD here. It is Tuesday, December 12, 2023. Here we are back. There's been a hot minute since we've done this show. Both of our schedules have been uh, jam-packed, Anthony. So uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, man. Uh, obviously, we found a time today that lined up. But uh, certainly a lot to discuss here with the Flyers who are legitimately, is it too early to say, a good hockey team. Good feels like a stretch, but they're they're over-exceeding their very low expectations. How about that? Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. And they're playing like, it's not just like lucky wins or amazing They are working their asses off right now. Yeah, that that's the thing is that like, when is the last time we saw, a t- and take away all, all like the rebuilding context and what it could mean for the future and all that. But like from a strictly an on-ice standpoint when is the last time we've seen a flyers group play this hard every night been a hot minute there was that stretch there right before the pandemic hit where they were playing some good hockey but consistently like this for you know half a season really going back into you know decent parts of last year as well ever since tortorella showed up they've been they've been working hard and the stars are aligning this year and making it work i mean you're probably talking i don't know more than a decade at this point and that's the thing like you there's obviously legitimate questions to do with the the entire like if they're rebuilding are they playing themselves out of another high draft pick should they be trading off some of the players who maybe they're looking to keep because of how well they're playing but like if you take it from just like an entertainment perspective like it really is hard to diminish how well they're playing because they're legitimately playing like a team that we have not seen for to your point save for a two, three month stretch right before the pandemic in the first year of LA Vigneault, a brand of hockey that we're not accustomed to. And it's not even like typical John Tortorella type of hockey. Like they're playing exciting hockey. They're getting contributions from guys we would have never like expected. There's very few guys on the team. And sure, you can nitpick here and there who maybe aren't play up to expectations or shouldn't be playing instead of other guys. But it's really incredible that you know we're well past the quarter mark at this point we're approaching the the third mark of this point of the season and they're still right in the thick of things now do i think that they're going to hold this pace right till the end probably not because you assume that new jersey's eventually going to wake up carolina's eventually going to wake up tampa bay is eventually going to wake up and there only are 50 percent of the teams that make it in the east but it still is crazy to say how well the flyers have played given their as you mentioned their non-existent expectations coming into this season they're they play the predators tonight they're looking for their fifth straight win in sixth straight game with a point so uh overall very exciting they beat the coyotes on thursday took down the avalanche on saturday and now looking for the predators as well so been a uh yeah been a stretch of you know, semi-decent hockey. This obviously leads into the, you know, rebuilding talk and all that. But Jesus Christ, I beat that topic to death over the last few days here. And the last few episodes we've done, especially on freaking Flyer, Flyer side chat. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But uh, good news, Sam Erson starting tonight. I believe, uh, I think it's been, what, nine days since last time he played? There's a positive development for all you think uh, folks out there that think I'm just a negative asshole. They're finally using the goaltending the right way. They sent Sonstrom down after keeping him locked in the press box for you know eight weeks, whatever it was. And one thing I will say is that like it was unideal with how they used Sonstrom, but you you've seen more than one team, specifically the Canadians and the Sabers, carry three goaltenders this year. 
And, you know, there, there's a case to be made that you should be allowed to carry three goaltenders, like, just consistently. I think that we've gotten to that point in the NHL where you should be able to, like, carry a third guy who doesn't count against the cap for less than a million or something. But obviously, it wasn't the most ideal way to handle Sandstrom, but I'm really happy that they made an effort to keep Samuel uh, Felix Sandstrom because that was behind the reasoning, was just they didn't want to lose him. Because they do see value in him, in him, even if it's as like a fringe NHL backup. So I will give them some credit that at least they made an effort to keep Felix Sandstrom, who by all accounts has been solid with the the Phantoms. He's getting his shit back together. You know, he missed uh, two months there with the press box, and he came back and got hurt in his game and a half in, and uh, his his game this sat past Saturday. I guess it was Friday. Uh, Peterson started Saturday, but yeah, Friday he finally looked good. Looked like uh, back to his old self down there. So they finally got that. You know, well, like when they first started the season with three goaltenders, it's like okay. Carter Hart's future is murky at best right now, right? Between the Team Canada thing, between his pending contract. Like, maybe they realize that. They're going to dial him back. They're going to work Urson into the starting role, you know, slowly but surely, and then throw Sonstrom a bone every now and again just to, you know, because they like the guy, even though I find that incredibly difficult to believe. But then that didn't happen, right? Hart's playing every single night. Urson's barely playing at all. Sonstrom's not playing at all. And, uh... I mean, uh, they, they figured it out. Hart got hurt, and now they're running it back, and now Urson, I mean, looking good. Basically, once every seven to ten days, Urson is playing, which is like three or four games, which is a perfect pace for a backup. There's yeah. no reason to kill Carter Hart, to run him into the ground by playing him, you know, for 20 straight games. Urson's looking very good now that he's getting his legs under him playing regularly. Now you finally have a top goaltender, a decent backup, and now your third stringer is actually getting reps in the AHL as well, recovering from all the rust that he accumulated over the beginning of the season. So finally, took a little while, but they worked this goaltending thing out to the way it should be. Yeah, and even, by all accounts, Cal Peterson has slowly turned it around as well, his save percent. Well, he had a last couple decent games, I guess, but holy Jesus, Cal Peterson is bad. But let's just say, obviously not even close to being an NHL goaltender, but, like, as a number four, they're, like, they to be, be honest. Worse, sure. Yeah, like, when's the, like, they're incredibly deep at goalie right now. Like, when's the last time they were four goalies deep like this? Like, right to the Phantoms. Uh, God, I don't know. Exactly. Like, maybe ever. So, look, they've already committed to Samuel Urson until 2026, a two-year contract at a shade under $1.5 million. Carter Hart, who knows what's going on there. But, like, they're in good shape with the goaltending. And the good thing is, is that, yeah, at times Tortorella's wrote Carter Hart a bit too much. But... The thing is, is that the way they're playing, it's not like that they've been relying solely on the goaltending, which is crazy to say, because I actually thought the offense had a decent chance to take a step this year, which it has. But my concern was the defense uh, was the did I say defense by men offense. The offense had a chance to take a decent step this year. But the defense was my point of concern. But, you know, with the way Sanheim has improved his play, Sealer and Walker turning into like a very, very good second pair Ristolainen coming back the last seven games that he's more or less picked up where he left off last season. Like, I mean, there's things to nitpick, but that defense, man, like I cannot believe the way that they're playing. Can't believe the way they're playing, but, uh, you know, in terms of their longevity and long-term ability at this level, still a bit skeptical. A hundred percent. Like Walker is the true wild card to me because like, I mean, we didn't really know what he was. Like, I saw a lot of people putting him in the sealer stall 
category coming into this year. And I kept saying, like, he's not that. And you could make the case that Sealer is far and ahead away from Mark Stahl. And I think that that's been indicative with how their usage has been. But I always, I kind of pegged Walker as not like style wise, but tier wise, like a Justin Braun type, like a four five. But now he's playing like a two three. And look, who knows if that holds up? But like right now, the way Sean Walker is playing, it's what a steal in what was just a throw in for to make the salary work in that Ivan Profrom trade. Obviously, the defense here coming under uh, some level of intrigue as far as the. Trade deadline is concerned. It shows up in the beginning of March. Walker's a UFA. Stahl is a UFA. Sealer is a UFA. And Ristolainen's name has also apparently hit the uh, trade rumor mill here. He's got three years beyond this year at 5.1 mil AAV. So, uh, you know, in your best guess here, what do you think this ends up shaking out as? You know, there, there's been so many talks the last week. Obviously, I could tell you and have a story coming out later today that the Leafs and the Flyers had at least one conversation regarding Ristolainen. He is the type of defenseman that the Leafs are looking for, that physical right shot guy. They've gone out and got those types of defensemen each of the last two deadlines. Last year was Shen. The year before was Ilya Labushkin, who maybe is another target this year as he's out in Anaheim right now. But what I was told is that the Leafs are not a huge fan of the three-year term and would want retention. Everyone seems to kind of think that Ristolainen's a $4 million defenseman, which I think lines up. But the thing that I was reminded of is that as the cap goes up, when you're in year four and five of that contract and the cap is projected to be over $9 million, uh, $90 million, Ristolainen at five mil, if he holds up this play, which he has now for over 12 months, that's a good number. It's just this year that the $5 million is a bit unpalatable. But you look at Walker who's generated a lot of interest. The Flyers are trying to hold firm on a first-round pick. And I do think that re-signing him is in the cards. But I also think that that kind of hinges on Ristolainen, that they're not going to keep Ristolainen and Sean Walker. So I think that both of their futures kind of go hand-in-hand with one another. And then you get Nick Sealer, who teams have reached out on going back to last year. As Elliot Friedman reported on Saturday... There was a, a team that reached out on both Sealer and Walker. Obviously, they've been a very good second pair for the Flyers, so it makes sense that a team would reach out to acquiring both of them. I had one person suggest there was the Toronto Maple Leafs to me, and I had someone else say to me that because they were so hot and heavy to get Zadorov and Tanev from Calgary, it would make per- perfect sense that they would go for Sealer and Walker, shooting like a bit lower than Zadorov and Chris Tanev. I asked someone with the Flyers, that was shot down. So maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Maybe the Flyers are just trying to keep it under wraps for right now. But all this to say is that because the Flyers are playing so well, they're in a position of power. They don't have to trade any of these guys. They don't want to mess with the chemistry of that locker room. By all accounts, this is the best the locker room has been in years. You know, you got rid of all the problem children and D'Angelo, Provorov, and Kevin Hayes. That's a tight locker room. So do you want to fuck with what's going on right now? But at the same time, as you play better and these players play better, other teams are going to want them even more. And I think that somewhere down the line here, the Flyers are really going to ask themselves some tough questions about, okay, well, we don't want to screw with the locker room and the intangibles, but now we could get X for this guy that we thought was only worth this. So, I mean... Let's say somewhere down the line someone is willing to pay a first-round pick for Sean Walker 
or a second round plus for Nick Sealer, I think you're going to have to ask some tough questions just for the overall outlook of this team long term. But all this to say is that the Flyers are dealing from a position of power here because of how well they're playing and how well all their defensemen are playing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, uh, this feels like, you know, you're supposedly rebuilding, even though I don't believe that for a second. You've got a lot of assets here that, uh, you know, are piquing the interest of guys and Sean Walker. And I mean, you know, worse comes to worse here. It feels like this is a situation where you can maybe pull a Justin Braun of, hey, Trade Sean Walker at the deadline. Get up whatever you get back for him. And then if you realize you can't live without him, pursuing it in the offseason. Throw your hat in the ring and bring him back then. Like passing They're- up, you know, the value that these guys could bring to the asset pool for future ones seems like a, uh, you know, not great strategy considering they may or may not be in playoff contention when they do. And if they do make the playoffs, you know, they're certainly not going to compete for a cup this year. Well, I think it's fair to say that I've spoken to other teams. And right now, there isn't a team that's willing to give up a first-round pick for Sean Walker. So it's not like they have, like, a plethora of assets that are, or offers, rather, with assets including a first-round pick. I think teams are still trying to go in that third-round pick range. That's just a guess at this point on my part. But the one thing I could say definitively is no one is ready to pay that first-round pick. And I think from the Flyers' standpoint, you're saying, well, do we want to trade this guy for a third-round pick? fuck with the locker room, and then maybe we can't retain him in the offseason. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing from the Flyers' standpoint to really hold firm here because they don't have to trade these guys. Now, as Danny Breer said on the broadcast, what was it, over the weekend, that they're not deviating away from their plan? Mm-hmm. And I believe that to be true. But I do think that what it's allowed them to do is be tougher negotiators. And I spoke to some with the team earlier today And they told me like, oh, yeah, there are no negotiations right now because we're telling teams like we don't need to trade any of these guys. So you have to kind of blow us away here. And by blow you away, I mean, Sean Walker, a third round pick. I wouldn't do that personally. I wouldn't do Nick Sealer for a fourth round pick. Like these are guys playing legitimately good hockey at a second pair level. Wrist aligning, it's a bit different because you have to weigh how much you value getting out from that contract. But at the same time, he's in good hockey too. And if you keep Ristolainen in, in a in two years or so, like that's not a bad contract. Just a little bit heavy now. He's overpaid by a million or two, which is the case with a lot, if not most of, right shot defensemen. So it's it's at a point now where the Flyers can, can uh, negotiate from a position of power. Now, if it comes out kind of like what happened with Scott Lawton, that they've turned down first round picks for some of these guys, then, yeah, we could for sure criticize them. And I think they would deserve it at that point. But I think at this juncture, specifically for a guy like Sean Walker, who, aside from Chris Tanev, is probably the highest rated right shot D on the market right now, specifically because he is a pending UFA. I don't blame that uh, them at all for balking at trade offers that doesn't include a first round pick or close to it because there's no reason to settle for anything other than that at this juncture. So it's going to be a pretty quiet trade deadline unless somebody blows their balls off is what you're hinting at. I mean, I don't think so because a lot can change here. Like we're 27 games in, but in two months time, the wagon, the wheels can completely come off the wagon and then we'll reset at that point. But I mean, the Flyers don't have a ton of pending UFAs of note to begin with. Like, you have the three on the back end, and Mark Stahl, I think, is a guy that, like, 
are you going to trade him for a six round pick at 50% retention or are you better off just keeping him around for intangibles type of thing? And then up front, like, do they have any pending UFAs up front? No, they don't. Not it's all UFAs, pending no. RFAs. Yeah. yeah, so you're not going to trade Tippett. You're not going to trade Brink. I mean, maybe you could get something for Ryan Paling, but I think that they like Ryan Paling because, A, he's young, so he could theoretically kind of be part of the solution. And they don't really have any depth at center, even with the with the Phantoms. So, I mean, he kind of provides them that flexibility to play other guys on the wing. Like, I've even heard that Noah Cates might go back to the wing when he comes back. So, I, I don't know. Like, Ryan Paling is someone that obviously gets... Well, you could speak to that more than me. Is there anyone... Like, Den Y.A. maybe, but I heard he got off to a slow start. But is there anyone pushing through down the middle of the ice between now and next season? I mean, lazinski has been very good this year, but I think that ship has sailed. Uh, you know, Denoyer, I'm sure Denoyer could fill in at 4C. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, he's definitely not as, he did not get off to the start that he ended last season with when he was, you know, set the Lehigh Valley Phantoms rookie goal scoring record and whatnot. He's been relatively disappointing on the whole, but as far as center goes, I mean, you, those are your only two notable guys. You got Rhett Gardner who exists, Adam Brooks who exists, you know, just random dudes. Um, so center is very shallow uh, with the Phantoms right now. And you can make the case that shallow throughout the organization. Pretty much. Because I, I guess a lot depends on where Cutter Gauthier ends up. But like <laughs> Gauthier and Mitchell are your centers, and neither one of them are actual centers. Yeah, exactly. And you have Denver Barkey, who still I've spoken to several people about him over the weekend. He's at World Junior Camp right now with, the, with Team Canada. And still many people believe that he is more of a winger. But the most I've heard is that he could play both. He's a Swiss Army knife. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. I think I think you have Cole Knubel, who, I mean, again, like these are like later round picks. So Ryan Paling, I mean, he is what he is. But I think that what they like about Ryan Paling is that he allows the flexibility to not force feed guys down the middle. You know, whether that be Cates, whether it be Lawton, like those are two guys that you can make the case are better suited for wing than they are center. So, I mean, your three UFAs and principal trade ships here are Stahl, Sealer, and Walker. And unless teams really step up for Walker, like, yeah, I think it could be a quiet trade deadline, certainly if the Flyers hold this pace right up until March. Because if they're right in the thick of it come March, like then you're really faced with some tough decisions and how you could affect that locker room. Speaking of AHL guys that were recalled, Ollie Lexell, like, <sighs> tied for second in the AHL in goals when he was recalled, led the league in power play goals, led the league in shots on goal. I believe he was tied for second in power play points. Gets recalled, plays all of six shifts against the Coyotes, was scratched uh, the other night, and now is going to be scratched again tonight. Why? How do you have a guy that has excelled in the AHL for a year and a half now? And this is, I believe, the third time he's been recalled, and third time he's basically been rejected at the NHL level by John Tortorella. Did Lexell fuck Tortorella's wife or something? Why does, <laughs> why, why does he hate this guy so much? I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, I always say that I'm not in lockstep with everything that Torts does. I think on a macro scale, he's done mainly a very good job. But there are instances like this that I question it. And to be fair, I was surprised that they called Lexell to begin with. 
because I was told by someone about two weeks ago that if Lexa were to be recalled, it would be for like a top nine role, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Like if you recall him, you want him more in a position of scoring. And with Kate's injured, I mean, he is a winger. So I guess theoretically, if he was going to get into the lineup, it would have been at uh, in the top nine. But he got in because he got in because Paling was sick. Is yes. that it? Yeah. So, I mean, Paling's predominantly been your 4C. I thought more that they were going to recall a guy like a, like, to be honest, like, I, I thought they would have recalled, like, a Rhett Gardner or Cooper Marodi. Yeah, if you just call up Adam Brooks and let him sit as the 13th forward for a few weeks, who cares? If you're going to yeah. call up someone like Lexell, utilize the guy! Yeah, that's, because the thing is, is just, like, if you just need an extra body because you're on a road trip, then, yeah, it makes sense. Recall Marodi or Brooks or Gardner and then have him sit most of the time. And if he does play, he's playing less than 10 minutes. I don't really get the Lixell thing. I mean, I think that I had someone tell me that a few weeks ago, like Torts is finally starting to buy in of playing the young guys. So maybe what? there still is a bit of a push and pull there. But I mean, to be fair, it's not that young guys in general, it just feels like he decides which young guys he likes. Like, he clearly really likes Forrester. He loves Forrester. He goes back he and forth him. on Brink. He fucking hates Zamula most of the time. And then everyone else just gets fucked. Yeah, Brink, I think he likes for the most part. Um, uh, so, I mean, like, it, it's it's a push and pull with him. So, I mean, I, I don't really get that either. <sighs> it just frustrates the shit out of me. that You have a guy excelling in goal scoring and power play scoring. The Flyers power play, oh, it's above 10%. It's at 12.1% right now. What the fucking do? You know, this guy is excelling in the areas where the Flyers are struggling the hardest. You call him up, and then he's just chilling in the press box. They're going to roll 11 forwards and 7D. They did the other night. I assume they're back uh, to regular standards with paling bats tonight. But, yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know. If, if you're only going to have him up for a few games and his extra body on a road trip, like, throw him in your top six. See what happens for a game or two. Maybe you make a star overnight. Who knows? <laughs> rather than putting him at 4C and then let him sit in the press box. Just so stupid. What have you overall thought of Tortorella now that we're like 14 months into this? You know, the the Tortorella, the coach, is obviously doing great things. You know, his usage of the kids is suspect more often than not. And with a lot of these guys and the way he kind of, you know, got rid of guys like Allison without giving them opportunities and now Lexel without an opportunity and so hot and cold in Zamula, you know, the way he's using some of these guys really bothers me. But on the whole, he's clearly doing good things, right? But it's more like Tortorella, the pseudo-GM, that's that bothers me. You know, the trades in the offseason and... Talking about, you know, what was the quote he had the other day? When when Mitchkov comes over, we're going to possibly maybe kind of consorta, you know, uh, consider signing a UFA or something like that. And just the most non-committal way. And it's just like, it's this kind of stuff of you want to run. He wants to compete. He's not necessarily the guy to rebuild, rebuild as much as he is to, you know, win during a rebuild, which isn't a rebuild. But, uh you know, as a coach, he's great, but I think his power overreaches a little bit when it comes to the control of the organization, and I think that may ultimately lead to a lower-ceiling team in the long term. You know, we've talked on Freakin' Flyer about kind of becoming the new Blue Jackets. Here's a hard-working bubble team, 
but if they ever make the postseason, they're just going to get snuffed out right away by an actual legitimately built playoff team because they just didn't have the talent. You know, they went work ethic and goaltending over, you know, solid offensive talent that you need to compete these days. And, you know, we'll, I think the trade deadline will give a better insight into the direction of the future here. But on the whole, you know, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed with the direction that they seem to go for the future, even though I really like what he's doing from a coaching perspective. So I'm kind of very torn on my thoughts on Tortorella as a whole right now. Yeah, there's I kind of feel the same way because there's a part of me that gets annoyed with this and he does obviously have a big ego and he's just like like, I use this word a lot and I've actually kind of ripped it off from a host on TSN Brian Hayes when describing Tortorella like he's just very heroic about everything like everything is just so heroic but at the same time I remember how we used to speak as early as two years ago about the inmates running the asylum yeah and not for, like, Tortorella aside, like, just, it's a faceless guy for the sake of argument. Like, it does kind of feel good that they finally have a coach who came in here and ripped all the control away from the players. Because you saw a legit coach in L.A. Vigneault, who I really liked, and I'll still stand by, yeah. come in here and the first year legitimately coached this team to a cup contender. And then the team had got their feelings hurt in the bubble and they have, they immediately turned on them and to, you know, AV quit on the team. We've all heard those reports the pandemic him hard and all that. He had his faults, but like the way that they quit on Elaine Vigneault in the middle of the bubble, based on the way that not only the way they were playing before they got to the bubble, but in the bubble, we remember that round Robin, it really sat poorly with me. And Jake Vorchek was on Chris Mayer's podcast and said that he had an ego so big that he couldn't fit through the door. It's just like, dude, like, who the fuck are you? kettle on that one, eh? Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I know a lot of people, like, jumped on that, but it's just like, dude, like, what the fuck did you Of all people, yeah, Jake Voracek to say something like that. And I remember I was talking about it that AV got the most out of Voracek. Yeah. Voracek was, like, well under Alain Vigneault. So, and and I've been told several times that the rebuild was... Almost as much, not all, but almost as much about restructuring that culture as it was about getting the talent. And I think that Tortorella has, not without his faults, and I could rattle off several that I roll my eyes at and things he says where I'm just like, dude, like, shut the fuck up, you know? (laughs) But, like, on a macro scale, I would be lying if I said that it doesn't feel kind of reassuring that they finally have a coach in there who has said, no, no, this is the standard. This is the way we're going to play. And kind of kept the players on their on their toes because we were so accustomed and we're, we're not going to get into the whole Giroux good captain thing or Kevin Hayes or Provorov, all that. Like, we're not going to go down that diatribe. But there clearly was some truth to that, that some players, prominent players in that room, going back, back to the Hextall era, were maybe way too complacent, including Claude Giroux. And we're not going to discuss that it wasn't their fault, it was Hextall's fault, like, that's just so long ago now. But the end result was what it was. No matter whose fault it was to get there, the end result was what it was. And it was a team that didn't give a shit. Under Dave Hextall, under Scott Gordon, under Alain Vigneault, under Mike Yo, 
did not give a shit. And now they give a shit every night and the proof is in the pudding. So from that standpoint, I really have a hard time saying that he's the wrong coach because yes, is he coaching them to a spot that's maybe not great from a long-term perspective? Yes, does he make questionable decisions regarding young guys? 100%. Yes, does he kind of put himself before the team at times, on at least from an optics point of view, which is completely hypocritical because of what he preaches? Yes. But it just seems that he's been able to squeeze the most out of some guys that we never thought was possible and the team that we never thought was possible. And it just it's very reassuring that he's been able to put a product on the ice that we haven't seen probably since the Peter Laviolette days. I just think like at the end of the day, how much does the work ethic get you? You know, yeah. great. You're building a good culture. That's awesome. You're probably a bubble team this year. I would not be surprised if they are in it till the you know dying days of the season at this point. Which, as a fan, you have an appreciation for. Sure, absolutely. Tortorella, the coach, building up this group of nobodies is making it work. But like the thing that it's why I just don't have any feelings towards any of this anymore is just like you gotta build something better. You got to add the talent. This work ethic thing is not going to take you as far as people think it's going to take you. And, you know, are they in on Nylander? Do they make a trade for Pedersen? Do they, uh, you know, it's just, it feels like they're just going to run it back. And the work ethic, you know, when you look at a season like 1718, when a few players over exceeded, they got stomped in the postseason by a legitimate playoff team in the Penguins. They ran it back more or less in the offseason and didn't make the right adjustments, I guess is probably the better phrase for that. And they sucked again. And in 1920, you're riding a team strictly based on more momentum than anything. You know, on that hot streak, you go to the postseason. But they did have talent, at least, on that team. They they did. There was more than what there is now, probably, in the whole. But, you know, they're riding the momentum. You hit the snag in the pandemic, and they came back, and they're just never the same after that. You know, is this going to carry them again next season? If they don't actually start, if there's no, if there's nothing to show for the work ethic, do the players keep this level up long term? Can this team have any actual success if they're not drafting well? If they're not developing the players that they are drafting, like Lexel? You know, it's just this. It's just not a recipe for long term success. And I think that's where I get so strung up in all this. Now, real, they're winning games. They're on a fucking win streak. People are planning their goddamn seats in the parade because they beat the Coyotes in early December. But, you know, it's not about now. It's how this team responds. You know, this season was not supposed to be like this. You know, and in a lot of ways, even though it is like this, it doesn't matter. It's always about yeah. how they respond. It's how they continue to build and get better. It, now that you're over-exceeding these expectations, they may even make the playoffs. If they do, do they continue to build forward? Do they say, mm, this group's working, let's, let's re-sign Walker, let's re-sign Stall and Seal, let's get the band back together and go out there and be a hard-working bubble team again? You know, or do they try and actually capitalize and make legitimate changes and momentum swings? And it's just like, I don't believe that. I've fallen into this Ron Hextall trap one too many times over the years. And, you know, it's up to the organization to prove that they're ready to change. And this is more than just a cultural shift. You need to have a good on-ice product, too, with legitimate star power if they want to compete with the best of the best in a playoff series. I put a tweet out the other day, a poll last week. You know, if the season ended today, they would play Carolina in the first round. 
Do you believe they could beat the Hurricanes in a seven-game playoff series? 75% of people said no. I was baffled by that, by the way, based on the sheer pro-state propaganda fucking homerism that goes around these days. But uh, it's like, if they can't get out of the first round beating a playoff team, then what are we doing here? Yeah, know, they need no. to. They need to build up. There needs to be a future here, and that—that's what I'm focused on. This season is great and wonderful and amazing. They're overexceeding, but how do you build this team up to back into legitimate contender status? And that is where every previous GM since you know the early days of Paul Holmgren in 2007 failed miserably. So I have a question. We were talking a lot about the direction of the team. Obviously, they haven't done a whole lot, but how do you feel about the Briere-Jones dynamic? And and you know what? Even above them, how do you feel that it's no longer Scott and Camillo and it's also Dan Hilferty? Because I don't think that gets talked about enough as well. I mean, they're clearly trying to rehab their image, which I think is probably more the Hilferty-Jones side of things. You know, Briere is delivering quite a few mixed messages about what rebuilding means when he spent the offseason using the word rebuild, and then the preseason is, we're going to win as many games as possible. And here they are winning games, and we did that thing with Charlie. You know, we're winning games, but we're still rebuilding. Well, why, why even bother saying that? Why not just say, hey, we're playing better than expected. We want to capitalize on it and consider all of our options moving forward for the positive. Great! If he said that, I'd be on board right now. But the fact that we're going to win games and blow our draft position and we're still rebuilding, that's just a built-in excuse. That is an excuse to do nothing and run it back next year because they don't have to be good. So on the whole, like, I guess it could be worse, but it could be significantly better, which I believe was my main takeaway from from the offseason in, in general with what Breer did, right? It, was, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, we just survived Chuck Fletcher, for Christ's sake. But uh, at the end of the day... What could be happening right now could be better planned and executed for a more successful future. I asked mostly about the Hilferty stuff because, you know, aside from the Provorov trade, like, Breer didn't do much, yeah. right? Right? Like, he dumped Hayes, he bought out D'Angelo, he signed a few guys. but And the Provorov trade was a hell of a move. I will give him his flowers there. But this is more or less still a chuck fletcher team. more or less yeah and they have good talent and like i mean i i will still beat this drum like i don't think he was a great gm but i think that the problem was way more dave scott and the marching orders he was given and i think he alluded to that on 32 thoughts as well and i've still had people say to me to this day who are still with the team that fletcher was not allowed to rebuild and he wasn't even allowed to say it under dave scott and I just like, and again, you could attribute this more to Brent Flair, who's still with the team, who I think doesn't get the flowers he deserves. But we're seeing with Brink, we're seeing with York, we're seeing with Forster. I don't know if Lexell was. I think it was then. last year of Hextall, if I remember correctly. It might have been whatever. Tippett, who they weren't, they didn't draft, but it was, uh, he was acquired by Fletcher. Den YA. Then you have, um, what's the other guy I'm looking Lexa for? Was, uh, 2017. 2017. So that was, uh, that was uh, what's his face? Prior. So you're seeing a lot of guys here that were drafted under Fletcher. But again, you could attribute that more to Brent Flair, who still is here. And I think that rightfully so. People just wanted his head on a stake by, uh, by association. But looking back on it, will we at least say with the Fletcher stuff that well, 
it was a disaster for a lot of it, but at least they drafted well and set a foundation that they were able to use moving forward. That's the one positive that could come out of this, and now it's just a matter of whether they utilize some of these guys more regularly and have plans for them in the future, which, you know, <laughs> based on the way this season has gone, highly fucking skeptical. But, uh, you know, it, it is the one bright side that kind of came out of this was, was Brett Flair and what he's done and what he's going to hopefully continue to do for a little while here um, is at least give them options from within, you know, which they, you know, did not have with, you know, Hextall and Chris Pryor. Yeah, and it's um, I mean, and even some of the contracts that Fletcher signed, like I mean, the Sanheim one is probably going to age really well. The Ristolainen one, I mean, like people will never agree on that. Even if the guy does play well, they'll never agree on that. Couturier, I mean, the length is too long, but if you had to sign him, the number's very digestible. Farabee, it's like okay, whatever. Like I mean. At least he didn't, like, I don't think he saddled this team with albatrosses. Like, the only albatross deal that he left them with was kind of Kevin Hayes, and they dealt with that. And that was signed before the pandemic when you thought the cap was going to go in a different direction. So, at, like, it feels like, and this is not me sliding Briere or saying Fletcher was good. It's just objectively looking at it. It feels like Fletcher left the team in a better spot than Hextall did. And then you couple that with Fletcher leaving along with Camillo and Dave Scott, save for a few months here and there, and you bring in a business Comcast side of it that's more understanding of what this team needs. Keith Jones is kind of like the bridge between both sides. At least it feels like it's not an upward hill battle because it feels like Fletcher, and again, this is not me excusing all the garbage he did, and I think that a better GM could have maybe navigated it in a superior fashion, but it feels like at least he was able to leave it in a better spot than he found it, even though he had such unrealistic marching orders. I guess, you know, the Katrina thing, like, you know, I guess he could have got paid $9 million dollars. Which uh, you know would have been slightly worse, and some of these things, this Fairby one is not turning like, out great. If you had to re-sign them, which it was, they didn't. No, they didn't. And you know, Sanheim, they didn't have to re-sign him either. It's just, but you know, Sanheim's deal was pretty much market value for the guy at that time. You know? Yeah, once Uyghur signed, that was pretty much it. That's close, and so I mean, a lot of these things are not necessarily egregious in terms of comparables and whatnot. Um, it just didn't necessarily need to happen when, you know, the team was so goddamn terrible when he was here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's nothing here that's that's overly egregious and, and going to be impossible to get out of, and they took their bullet on, you know, Kevin Hayes with, uh, what, $3.6 million on the books until 2026, and they had to, you know, digest uh, D'Angelo's buyout after Breer got taken on that one. So, other than that, I mean, on the whole, I don't think there's anything overly terrible there. I mean, Peterson's the next worst contract, and that was a Breer move. So yeah. No, it's at least it's like, and again, like Briere, I think deserves his flowers. Like that Provorov deal, it just looks better and better, does it not? I mean, as long as Walker's doing what he's doing, yeah. And you get basically, uh, what's his face, Oliver Bonk out of it. You still have, how has Helgi Granz looked? Not great. Oh, no? No. So of those defensemen down there, like who's the closest between, let's say, him, Haddard, and Ginning? Because obviously Andre's probably in a class of his own. Andre's far and away 
Adderd is very good, but I'm highly skeptical they ever give him a chance at this point. I think he's on the out. Even though I already signed for next season, that poor bastard. feels so bad for him. But uh, he should be up, especially with how shitty the power play is. Uh, Jinning is fine. I think he's had a bit of a rockier road this year than he did last year. He was just fucking awesome last year. I think it's been a bit rockier overall. But Granz, I mean, Granz has been on the top pair with Andre. But he no, just... the Swede connection. Yeah, uh, I believe they played together at the World Juniors. It's just, it's just not working. This guy just is not coming as advertised. But I mean, I really like Ronnie Adderd. He should have been given an opportunity probably last year at this point. And uh, Jinning, I would not be surprised if Jinning could settle in as a third pair guy at some point. But it's about whether they're given opportunities. And you've got what nine bodies on the blue line on the NHL right now, and Zamul struggles to get in on a nighttime basis. So I can't imagine anybody else is. Uh, gearing up to overthrow any of these guys anytime soon but yeah i mean you've got plenty of defensive depth down there right now what about ethan sampson yeah not really well i guess it's his first year pro right so yes it's... but mainly on the third pair uh, okay so i mean they they have some options here i think this upcoming draft is going to be defense heavy my had one scout tell me that the center depth is non-existent i mean last year they went hard what's that great <laughs> yeah like that that's something that i mean is really gonna have to come to a head here soon is the center depth because even for as many solid forwards as they've drafted whether it be Gautier or mitchkov or barky or cole knubel or to to amala you i guess you could touch on him as well fucking awesome i love sam really amala. okay that's good this guy looks so considering he was you know, basically cast aside as a top prospect when he went back to Finland and didn't do a goddamn thing for the last two and a half years. This guy is awesome. He and Lexell yeah. and uh, Lazinski, those the big three, the only three that can score a goal for the Phantoms right now. Just incredible. So, I mean, they, they have options here. And, you know, obviously Mitchkov and Gautier, much more, so, much more so the former, are their crown jewels right now. But they still kind of need that center. And it's going to be interesting to see how it eventually shakes out. Now, if Gotze and Mitchkov evolve into what we think they could be, Mitchkov like a top five player in the NHL, and Gotze like a very solid top line player, do they need a superstar center to center them? So maybe it's about finding the diamond in the rough. Like Morgan Frost, I mean, I guess is still your best option at this point, but I mean, who knows if he's still going to be here? It seems like the talk around him has kind of quieted down oh, cause, since because uh, he's hurt and he's playing every night now. Yeah, because uh, Noah Cates is hurt. I mean, no, like Morgan Frost. Like, look, we historically haven't been too high on him, but like, you look at his game and he's fine. And I think Tortorella has been way too hard on him at times. But I mean, it just is. It's a. It's starting to just kind of seem like he's never going to be that. I mean, look, last year he was a 50-point guy. I think it's what he is. He's like a middle six random 50-point dude. That's, that's Which is okay. It. There's it's nothing okay. wrong with that, but, it, you know, considering this entire roster is made up of middle six 50-point dudes right now, he's not exactly standing above the crowd. Is there anyone on this roster right now who, like, forward-wise, who, like, stands out to you, like, above the rest? Maybe, I guess, aside from Konechny? Uh, aside from Konechny? No. And even connecting, that's a relatively low bar in the terms of legitimate star power. You know, Forster's very good in just about everything that he does. 
I like Bobby Brink's potential. Tippett is fine, but he really has never kind of stood above in the rest. He's of a the- 25 goal. I mean, he's like a 25 to 30 goal scorer who could give you 30 points on your second. I mean, 50 points on your second line. Yeah, that's yeah. What, which is fine. But other than that, it's just a bunch of dudes. You're, yeah. you're lacking. And I mean, it, it shows itself on the power play, right? The power yeah. play is when your stars come out to play and you don't have any stars. And your last two years, they finished dead last in the NHL in power play percentage. And I think they're 27th right now. And if they keep this pace up by the time the season's over, they'll probably be dead last again. For me, tip, and obviously I've reported on what a tippet contract can look like, but. I love that me- his actual agent came out and said afterwards that there was nothing to that. Yeah, My player's not worth $7 million, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awesome. You know, it, it's funny because obviously people take a run at me for that kind of stuff, but it's like, if I was just some bum who knew nothing, do you really think his agent would come out trying to bunk what I'm trying to say? Probably not. But it's fine. I mean, <laughs> that, that comes with the territory, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I, I just think that eventually you're probably going to have to choose between Farabee and Tippett. And that's that's not me reporting it. That's purely my kind of thought and opinion on it because they more or less and especially since Tippett has pretty much exclusively become a left winger but I, I just don't know if you could have that many guys specifically on on the wing making north of five million dollars you know I, I don't know and I like Tippett will probably be what especially with the cap going up like six million dollars that's more or less fair I believe five to six probably yeah yeah and the one guy, and to be fair, he hasn't even been brutal per se, but the one guy that like when I watch him play, and he has been one of the worst forwards, but I just watch him play, I'm just like, why is he here as Cam Atkinson? Like he just feels like someone who's just, and I know he's good in the room. I've had people tell me that he's a great pro. We know Tortorella likes him. He's had stretches of decency this year. He hasn't been awful every game. You know, he has eight goals and 15 points, probably going to get 45, 50 points on the year, but it just feels like he's a pariah. You know, like, what do you do with this guy? Yeah, I mean, he looks every bit of a 35-year-old coming back from major neck surgery. You know, he's just, that's kind of where he's at right now. And he's got one year left at 5.8 million. So, you know, if you're retaining money on anybody this year, it better not be wrist line and it better be getting this idiot off the team. Um, I'm sure he's a great guy. You know, he's a torts guy. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's undisputed about him. But from an on ice perspective, when you got so many fucking wingers on this team right now, there's just no reason he's here. And they want to get bigger and he's tiny. And he's like, he even looks like Bobby Brink. It's kind of scary. <laughs> like, like he's kind of just taking that spot. And, you know, like I've put out, I think twice that I think they should buy him out and Cam Atkinson liked the tweet. And I feel bad saying that. <laughs> like, it, it's like, because the thing is, is that for what he provides, which is he's essentially kind of like in that tippet tier, like he could probably give you like 20 to 25 goals 45 points ish like his cap hit isn't terrible right it's not like he's a bum he's not jvr like he's not like a useless player it's just like for this team specifically if that makes sense pretty much i mean if he was making four and a half right now and has you know 15 points in 27 games that'd be right on the market basically yeah and you know, it, it's not to disparage him. It's more, it's not even so much for the salary. It's just the roster spot. And you talk about guys like Tuamala, 
Brink and Forster aren't going anywhere. You're probably going to have Konechny stick around if Tippett is a right winger. Like, I just, I, it's tough. He hasn't it, scored it, a goal it, since November 11th. Is that Atkinson? Yes. So he just got shot out of a cannon and just. Pretty much, yeah. Pittered out. It's tough. I mean, I would also can. I would also consider buying him out as opposed to retaining him just so you're not tied up with a retention spot next year. I think the bio penalty is relatively unsustainable, like inconsequential. So I, I, I suggested buying him out last year, whatever they did. Yeah, didn't. we talked about that over the summer, I believe. I guess that wouldn't have been the best look after coming off of injury and not playing at all. So I get that. And they didn't have to. And he's not terrible. He's just... He's just kind of there, you know. His buyout would be uh two point three million in twenty four twenty five and one point seven million in twenty five twenty six. So it's an option. It's um, it's definitely something that I think I would consider. I mean, the retention thing, like, and it's the same thing with Ristolainen. Would it kill them to retain a million on Risto? No, but it's the retention slots. Yeah. Because you can only do three at a time, and Risto would tie you up until, what, 27, yeah, 26? 27. And you're already tied up with Hayes until 26. So Atkinson is only a year, so it's not the end of the world. But that's just my view on it. And it's not even a slight at him as a player. I do think he's on the lower end of what they have. It's just I think that based on the other talent available to them, he's just kind of exists, if if you will. Yeah, you know, you've got too many too many bodies on this main roster right now, too many bodies in the system that that need this ice time, and Atkinson at this point just does not serve the purpose other than cheerleader, you know, the Tortorella bridge, you know, the Mark Stahl kind of thing. Um, so I, I assume he, if anything is changing this summer, I assume it's uh, probably Atkinson. Yeah. So anyway, um, I've, I mean, positives and negatives on both sides for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of short-term positives, a lot of long-term questions. Is basically what I've arrived at um as we talk more and more about this team is the right here and now is good. You know what they're doing to be a competitive hockey team you know, 2 3 4 years down the road. Well, TBD, I suppose. Yeah, but I guess like if you're a fan and just a spectator from that perspective, you got to be loving this. Yeah, you know, if you are are if you're not considering the future, you know, impacts of whatever they're doing right now, then, uh, yeah, they're probably liking it right now. It's a worthwhile three hours of your night to watch the Flyers play more often than not. Is there anything – let's end it try and end it on a positive note. What's your <laughs> biggest positive so far this season? I guess it's that some of your guys are looking good. I mean, you're finally getting something out of Konechny that seems like a consistent player. Obviously, that was the big question with him going into this season. You know, he's, he had peaks and valleys in his career, and can he keep this peak up? And, I mean, Sanheim, where the fuck has this guy been for the last yeah, seven years? It's a good... you, you see, the, the thing about Sanheim to me is probably the best part about Torts that you could find. How he probably said, like, dude, I know that there's more in there. And it took him, like, Almost getting traded because of how much Torts hated his guts. <laughs> and obviously I did that piece on Sanheim. And, but like transcribing it doesn't exactly tell you the tone. But it literally felt like it took a coach to challenge Sanheim to that level for him to snap out of it and realize the tools that he had in his tool chest. Yeah, so I think, you know, your two 
long-term players on this team that have been relatively mediocre through most of their careers, stepping up and, and being pieces now in this you know post Giroux era as they look for pillars to build around. Um, definitely a positive. Yeah, I, I would say Sanheim as well because we questioned what things would be without Provorov. And I think Sanheim, especially for that cap dollar, which will age, age very well, playing as well as he has, has really kind of solidified the D because as we saw when Provorov came up and Gossesbeer came up and even Sanheim himself came up, the lack of quality quality veterans really hurt this team until Niskanen and Braun showed up. And then we saw what happened post Niskanen and Braun and how important good, not just any veteran, but quality veterans can be specifically for defensemen. And the fact that he's been able to do this playing the right side, yes, which is that's forever, probably the more uh, impressive factor there. Yeah, it's crazy. Like what he's been able to do for York. So like if he's able to be this stable vet right through this rebuild at $6.25 million on that right side, I, I really don't see an issue with that contract. And my God, like we don't know the exact details of that deal that fell through, but thank God they didn't trade him for Tory Krug. Hey, they were going to trade him for six first-round picks, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <sighs> what a weekend that was, Jesus Christ! But and and this and I think it's important to say that just because Sandheim's playing well now, and he told me this himself when I interviewed him, it doesn't exclude like the criticisms before. Right. Like, obviously, we've heard how much muscle he put on, but like it doesn't mean that he was always good and people were just mean to him. Like he's and he deserves credit for this. Like he's legitimately worked to change his game completely. Oh, yeah. I was mean to him because he sucked. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's come around. He's playing very well. You know, the the past was the past. And if he can keep this level of play up, you know, well into the future over the next three, four years. It's a huge positive. You know, can he? Will he? Yeah, we'll find out. But, uh, you know, as far as what he's doing right now, I mean, if he was playing like this from the beginning, I mean, who knows, right? It's been, what, seven years now? So, yeah, very good play for uh, Travis Anheim this season. Do you think any of it, because he mentioned this to me, but do you think any of it had to do that he was finally given that opportunity with Provorov not there? I mean, I guess I think everything always kind of pivoted around a Provorov. So even when Sanheim is given, you know, the top line duties on the right side, you know, he just wasn't really the standout guy. And man, I thought for sure when Provorov left, Sanheim would be exposed you yep. know, and, and things would be even worse than they already were. But, you know, I was not expecting him to step up to, especially to this level. Uh, that's for sure. You know, like I, I was been Sam, uh, Sanheim's biggest critic for his entire career at this point. And, you know, I've got nothing bad to say about him right now. Well, like, I was always a huge Provorov defender, yeah, and I think you were too, but I've eaten my words on it. It shows that a lot of his struggles had to do with himself as well, and probably pouting and finger-pointing. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, uh, you know, it probably didn't help, and I, I think one kind of feasted off the other. You know, the fact yeah. that they never built up around him, you know, five years ago, probably led to the state that he was in at the end there. Um, but yeah, you know, for sure, they they are a... Better team, kind of, sort of, without Ivan Provorov. The one thing I'll say before we close it out here is that I would really like them to kind of establish a leadership group. Like, that's one of the things that I've been somewhat critical of Tortorella. Like, the first year, fine, taking away the A's of Provorov and Hayes, whatever. 
But the 1A thing around a fourth line slash third line player is kind of getting old. And I think it's important as to where this team is going to establish a leadership group. And now we could talk about or speculate rather who should get those A's. Um, but we're not in the room. We don't know. But I mean, if they're going to be here for the long haul, as much as we've both criticized these guys, I think Konechny and Sanheim probably should get A's. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, I still don't know if a C at this point in time is overly critical. But yeah, maybe start spreading the wealth out a little bit. You know, if these guys are leaders, especially when you're driving this fucking culture-based rebuild. Yeah, That's your whole exactly. mantra right now. Maybe start rewarding the players that are actually stepping up and leading. Yeah. Like, I don't think that they should award a C right now. I think they're so far away from that. And maybe their next captain isn't even on the roster. But I think that, you know, if you gave... Like, Katori probably should get an A back. You know, I, I don't think he's ever... I have my criticisms about him as the player, but as a leader, by all accounts, he's always been a super good guy. But I think if you give A's to Konechny and Sanheim and Katori, I, I don't think there'd be any wrong doing that. And I think they've deserved it for the way that they've responded under Tortorella. And whether or not you believe they should be part of this long-term for the rebuild purposes, I think the way that they've responded as players and playing the best hockey of their career should get some recognition. Yeah. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with giving them an A on their Jersey. I, I, I just don't, you know, I realize the Tortorella power trip at hand here more than anything <laughs> else, but yeah, it, it, there's just no reason why Lawton's the only guy at this point, especially like I said, when you're driving such a culture based uh, approach right now, you know, if your guys are stepping up and earning it, then you'll know, reward them somehow. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, some positives, some negatives, but overall, just over, for me, it's just surprising play to this point. Yeah, surprising play. Sit back and enjoy it and, and just wait until the trade deadline. Then we get all fucking pissed off about their plan on that one. But uh, Wait for the wheels to fall off. Pretty much, yeah. But, uh, you know, until <laughs> then, we just got uh, to keep it up. So uh, I think we'll call it a day. Uh, God, I don't know when we'll be back. I think we're doing a freaking flyer on Sunday, maybe. We'll see. Doesn't matter. Uh, plenty of shit up on the website, brotherlypuck.com. At Dan the Flyer fan at brotherlypuck at brotherly underscore pod. I don't know if I ever plugged it on this show yet. Probably not. It's been a while. Uh, starting a new journey over on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I follow my, you. That's good stuff. Hockey jersey collection. Dan the Flyer fan underscore jerseys over there if you want to peek and do my rather extensive jersey collection. So check all that out. And uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Adamarco25. All right, everyone. Until next time, goodbye and good night.